Good morning, 26 West. So good to be here with our sister church from across the way. Um, like Ryan said, my name is Brian Fowler, and I've been at Westside for a couple years now. Um, before that, though, my family and I were living in Raleigh, North Carolina, pastoring a church out there. So if uh, you hear me say a couple y'alls, you'll know where that's coming from. I am originally Southern California native, but five years in the South can really deconstruct a lot of that. So I still held on to the y'all. I didn't get the Southern accent, but uh, so good to be with you. The only time I've been able to share at 26 West was when we were still online. So I was on camera, didn't see any of uh, you handsome and beautiful men and women. So good to be here in person. Uh, just got back with Jose and Carmen from a leadership retreat in Lake Tahoe, which was really rough, hard, difficult. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just so much cooler than it is here. Like it was, I think we even got rained on. So I don't know if I'm ready for 115 degrees. Um, hope you all stay cool. Hey, I'm going to be continuing with you in this series that Jose started, is it three or four weeks ago, called Your Best Life Now, 11 Keys to Prosperity. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, uh, your, your Resilient Faith series. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the character of Old Testament Joseph uh, out of Genesis. So if you've got a Bible or a device where you can access the scriptures, if you would turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. And when you get it, just say, I got it. And if you're not there, you can say, I'm getting it. And I'm going to pray while you flip or swipe or whatever you're doing to access the scriptures this morning. Uh, Father, thank you for just coming together to worship. This is an ancient practice. We are a part of a long tradition of men and women who love Jesus, who've gathered together in some format similar to this to simply just declare to one another and to the world outside of us, Jesus is Lord. And that's what we're here for this morning, just to simply declare by the way we sing, praise, enjoy the Lord's Supper, and just bless one another and bless you. We're just saying, because Jesus is Lord, we do this together. And so now as we open up the Bible, I pray that your word would be clarified to us, that we would learn something that's deep and personal. I pray for brothers and sisters who might be wrestling with some of the content that we're talking about this morning, that God, you would work that out in their life, that, that we would see our lives not just to be learners, but actually to obey what we hear. So teach us to obey Jesus, and I pray that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, we all said it. Amen. Amen. You've had some time to turn there. Are you there? Okay. We're going to pick it up in verse 41 of Genesis chapter 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And the people shouted before him, make way. Thus he Put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name, now excuse me for the pronunciation or mispronunciation, Zaphonith Paneah, which in Egyptian means the God speaks and he lives. And he gave him 
Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Now Joseph, verse 46, was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During these seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine, now there's where we're going to really draw our attention. Two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me to forget all my trouble and my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And the church says, Amen. That was your cue to speak back. Amen? Okay. <laughs> you guys, I'm going to expect you to talk back to me, so sorry if you don't like that. I'm just going to keep asking for it even if you don't give it. Um, so in my assessment of the life of Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, this is the most important event, pivotal moment in his life. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament Joseph and the construct of the book of Genesis, you know that Joseph's life actually takes up about a third of the entire book of Genesis from chapter 37 to 50. So his life becomes a very important focus. Now, you, you, if you know the story of Joseph, how many of you read Genesis 37 through 50? Um, probably some of you even before you came here this morning, you Bible scholars. But um, in Genesis 37 through 50, you notice that there's actually a lot of very important events in Joseph's life. And, and, and I'm saying that this one, for reasons I'll explain, is maybe one of the most important, if not the most important moment in his life. But he has several important moments. Uh, one is being his father's favorite son and that fancy coat he got and being a favored son got him in lots of trouble. Also the fact that he was a dreamer and he has these dreams that basically have his brothers and his mother and father bowing down to him. And he was unwise enough in his youth to tell his brothers his dreams. And then he has this moment where his jealous brothers sell him to Ishmaelite slave traders. And his whole life goes from being a favored son to now being sold into slavery. And then he ends up in Potiphar's house, sold into slavery in that home during which time there's another, another really pivotal moment where Potiphar's wife, his wily wife, goes after Joseph and he has to avoid her and eventually has to dip out of his coat and run streaking down the road to get away from this wily woman, to which he then ends up being thrown in prison, falsely accused of rape because a woman scorned. You know how that saying goes. And then on and on he goes to prison and then interprets dreams. And then finally, this climatic moment where he ends up second in command in all of Egypt. Now, these are all very important, big moments in the life of Joseph in this section of Genesis. But then this moment in Genesis 41 is the one I want to draw our attention to because I think that this is of utmost importance because of this. 
all of the external storms that Joseph has experienced up until this point have suddenly ceased. They've settled down. He's no longer a slave. He's no longer a prisoner. He's no longer vulnerable to being exploited by people with power. He's second in command to Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of the most powerful empire in the known world in that time in history. And with that, he's at a stable place, a place of prestige, a place of power, confidence, wealth. And the external threats have subsided, but now Joseph is about to face what I'm going to say is the greatest internal threat of his life. And that said, that's the temptation and very real pull toward bitterness because of the hurts of his past. And there are several people that could have been on Joseph's list of those whom he would be bitter at and even prone to want to enact vengeance upon. There would be, of course, his father, who he could be bitter at for the favoritism that Jacob showed him that caused his brothers to be murderously angry toward him. And of course, he could be very bitter at all 11 of his brothers who betrayed him, stripped him of his robe, threw him into an empty well, sold him to Ishmaelite slave traders, and convinced their father Jacob that Joseph was dead. He could be bitter at Potiphar's wife for making moves on him, which he pushed away, and then she accused him of rape. He could be unforgiving of Potiphar for basically not trusting his most trusted servant in the house and having him thrown in prison. He could be bitter at the cupbearer because he helped him interpret his dreams and they came off as accurate and yet he forgot him and let him rot in prison for two years. But, but maybe most of all, he could have been bitter with God for letting all this evil happen to him. And it's not lost on me that perhaps this morning that We've come in here and there are people sitting in these seats on a Sunday morning, coming to church, singing the songs, ready to listen to the scriptures who are dealing with your own past hurts and bitterness. And Joseph's got to face off with this. And it's my belief that the Lord wants to speak to us today, specifically from the life of Joseph in this area of learning to let go of our past, to move forward into the future, to be fruitful in the future. And so Joseph at this stable place now faces one of his greatest threats. And one of the greatest threats to any of our emotional or spiritual journey is dealing with our past hurts and bitterness. Actually, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 puts it this way. See to it, let's mind your own soul, that no one fail, falls, excuse me, short of the grace of God. And that no root grows up, excuse me, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So at this point, Joseph, no longer in external trouble, has been hurt deeply, betrayed terribly, and exploited, and now he's in a place of power. And he could potentially become very dangerous. Now, how many of you, just by maybe show of hands, uh, have gone through times in your life where you just read the Proverbs every day. Do you know that that's a possible practice? You can read the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms uh, in a month and finish both of those books, one Psalm, or excuse me, one Proverb, five Psalms, and you'll finish the book. Now, if you've read through the book of Proverbs, you know there's 
at least in my opinion, one of the most peculiar Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 30. It's written by this dude called Agur. And he says a lot of interesting things, but of the interesting things that Proverbs chapter 30 has to say through the wisdom writer Agur is this one phrase in verse 21 of Proverbs 30. He says and writes, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. And then he lists four things, but at the top of the list is this one, and this comes to bear on our text this morning. The earth cannot bear under a servant or slave who becomes a king. And that's what's going on in Joseph's story. He's been a slave, now he's a king. I love how Eugene Peterson translates Proverbs 30, verse 22. He says it's when the janitor becomes the boss. Now this isn't a a dash on socioeconomics or class. This is actually a conversation about character. Because power void of Character creates a tyrant. I um, become acquainted in the last few years with an author that a lot of you may be familiar with called John Eldridge. Anybody? John Eldridge, Wild at Heart? Some of you? Okay. Uh, He's written a book called Fathered by God. And in this book, he really, it's a book about the masculine journey from boyhood all the way into the end of your life. And he talks about the different stages of development. But in that book, he actually has this one part about power when it's in the wrong hands and how dangerous that can be. Now, as we think about Joseph and the fact that he was elevated from prisoner slave to a place of second in command over the most mighty empire in the known world, this comes to bear And so I want to just read this to you from John Eldridge's book, Fathered by God. And he's going to refer to what he calls an undeveloped or an uninitiated man when he's given power. Now listen to this. The crisis of leadership in our churches, businesses, and governments is largely due to this one dilemma. Men have been given power, but they're unprepared to handle it. The time of ruling is tremendous test of character And for the king, he will be sorely tested to use his influence in humility for the benefit of others. And what we call the midlife crisis is often a man coming into a little money and influence and using it to go back and recover what he missed as the beloved son. So he buys himself toys. Maybe you know someone like that or you are someone like that. Or he reverts back to the cowboy. He goes off on adventures. He is an underdeveloped, uninitiated man. A true king comes into authority and knows that the privilege is not so that he can arrange for his own comfort, but that he might be made, as he might be made president of a company or commander over a division, he might become a senior pastor or a high school basketball coach. This is the time of ruling over a kingdom. Now, had Joseph come into this pivotal moment in his life and chose the way of unforgiveness... Uh, he'd have been on the road to becoming yet another dictator in our history books, another Mussolini or Saddam Hussein or uh, Kim Jong-un and the family. Uh, This could have very well been the path because at this moment, as he receives the power and the position of wealth that he's in, he could have used that for evil and not for good. But rather than be a destroyer, he doesn't let the bitter root, as Hebrews 12, 15 says we shouldn't, he doesn't allow the bitter root to grow. He becomes a preserver of life 
rather than a destroyer. I wonder what some of us would do at the place of maturity we find ourselves in right now if we were given absolute authority to enact vengeance upon those who had harmed us, if we would use it for good or evil. You know, at the end of Joseph's life, he actually states, probably in the well, most well-known verse in the book of Genesis, or at least second, is Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. From Joseph's mouth, he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, that was what you wanted, but God intended something else for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So this power of overcoming bitterness is essential for his place of power. Now, have you ever been around a person who is deeply wounded and hurt in their lifetime, but rather than become bitter, they chose the way of forgiveness and now have become a life-giving source? When you see that in a person, it's an incredible virtue to see when beautiful forgiveness flows from someone who has hurt so deeply and profoundly. Maybe one of the best examples of that in history is Corey Ten Boom. Anybody read The Hiding Place? If you haven't, I'd recommend it. Um, she retells and recounts her story. Uh, during her life, her family was actually a family that decided that during the Nazi regime and the time of the Holocaust, that they would be a safe place, a hiding place for many Jewish men and women and children. They hid them in their home. And eventually that was found out and their whole family was sent off to the concentration camp, primarily Corey, her sister Betsy, and their father, in which during that time at the concentration camp, both Betsy, Corey's sister, and her father died, did not make it out. Corey actually was the only one who survived that traumatic experience. Before she went in, or actually before Betsy died, she says this one line, though, that's worth reading to you, to Corey, as she's dying in a concentration camp, she said these profound words. There's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And after Corrie ten Boom got out of the concentration camp, having lost her mother in a fatal illness, and then her father in the concentration camp, and then she was with her sister Betsy when she died. She began going around speaking at churches about her experience, about the love of God, about how God saw her through that time, even through the grief and the hardness. And she was in this particular church speaking in Munich, Germany, uh, in which she noticed in the crowd was one of the Nazi soldiers that was actually on station at the concentration camp in which her sister Betsy died. And I want to just read to you the account of Cory Timboon confronting or being confronted by this soldier. Um, she, she, she writes this in The Hiding Place. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good is it to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea? It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravenstruck in your talk, he says. I was a guard there, but since that time... He went on to say, I've become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do, for I had to do it. 
I knew that. And, and here's the part I want you to see. It'll come up on the screen. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So both Joseph and Corey Ten Boom and maybe other examples you could think of, even from your own life or people you know, put forth a powerful picture of this force called forgiveness. So what is the key to forgiveness when we have been wronged and hurt so that we can, as we say, become better, not bitter? How did Joseph keep his heart from descending into this dark hole called bitterness? And if any of you have ever struggled with bitterness, you know how toxic it can be to your soul. And so as I've looked over the chapters of Joseph's life, I've really come down to just wanting to leave you with three words. Now, I'll say it in more than three. <laughs> of course, you don't get off so lucky this morning. But these are the three words I really want you to walk away with this morning. And the first word, say it with me, is identity. Say it with me. Identity. Identity. The second word is choice. Say it with me, choice. And the third and final word is providence. Say it with me, providence. So those are your three words for the morning. Identity, choice, and providence. Now what do we mean by these three words? If you're going to walk out here and someone says, hey, you're at 26 West this morning. What was the sermon about? You can say three words, identity, choice, and providence. Hopefully you can stick that in your pocket. Now, uh, identity, first of all, was Joseph living in Egypt but not being an Egyptian. Choice is Joseph deciding to move beyond his past. And providence is Joseph tracing God's hand in even his darkest moments. Identity, thank you, choice, and providence. Now let's start with the first word, this word identity, because I want you to notice something. Joseph uh, gives his two sons in this section we read in chapter 41 these two names, Manasseh and Ephraim. And we'll talk about what those names mean in a moment. But these are Jewish names. And I don't know if that catches you as funny, but here he is second in command over all of Egypt. And he married an Egyptian woman. He's living in Egypt. He's been given uh, an Egyptian name by Pharaoh. He has half Egyptian children He's in Egypt because the sons of Israel have sold him out into slavery, and yet he has not changed his identity as a covenant son of Israel. He's a follower of Yahweh, though he's in Egypt, because his identity is rooted not in the place he was sent, but in the relationship he has with Yahweh God, a covenant son of Israel. He's not an Egyptian 
though he lives in Egypt. Does that seem like that might come to bear on the way that we live our lives being in Egypt but not of Egypt? You know, Jesus had something to say about this when he prayed his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. I just want to read a piece of that to you as Jesus actually interacts with this idea of being in the world, being in Egypt, if you would, but not being of it, not letting it be in you. John chapter 17, verse 14 to 16, Jesus prayed to his and about his disciples, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world anymore. Notice that they are not of the world anymore than I am in the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. That's not the prayer. But that you protect them from the evil one. Help them to stay in the world well. Stay in Egypt as a follower of Yahweh. Stay in Babylon as one who holds their identity as a follower of Yahweh. Stay in the world with kingdom values. That's the prayer of Jesus. That should be ours as well. For they are not of the world even as I am not of it. One of the greatest draws into bitterness because of the past hurts that we face in life is a loss of identity. When life throws you unfortunate circumstances and you become disappointed with your lot in life in this world, if your identity is not rooted beyond this world, then you can often think that what happens here is because it's so rooted in our identity sometimes that, that you can allow life in, on planet Earth to become a sum total and you become bitter. Now, somebody has put it this way. Christians are like a boat sitting in a lake. The boat is created for the water, but water is not supposed to be in the boat. You know what happens when water gets in boats, right? And th in that way, we're to be in it, but it's not to be in us. And, and so, for, for we see in Joseph, he's in Egypt. He's fully in Egypt. He's like Right at the top, he's got Egyptian kids and an Egyptian wife. He's, he's, he's Egyptian. He's got an Egyptian name, and yet he holds down that I'm in it, but I'm not of it. Just as Jesus prayed, just as we know that the Apostle John said that we're not to love the world. His identity was rooted in his relationship with Yahweh. And all throughout Joseph's journey, he's remembering these two things according to his identity. He remembers who he was and whose he was. Who's he, who he was and whose he was. Who he is and who he belongs to. There's that moment where Potiphar's wife is after him. He's uh, described as a handsome, buff, chiseled, young guy, right? And he's working in Potiphar's house unsupervised. And his wily wife is after this handsome, chiseled, young Hebrew guy. And he's constantly just pushing her away. And at one point in chapter 39, when she comes after him, he says this to her. He says, with me in charge, my master is not concerned himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, is he's entrusted to my care. No one's greater in this house than I am. My master's withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. This is a statement of who he is. I'm a man of integrity. I'm trusted by Potiphar, my boss, I'm not the kind of man that does this. And then he reminds her of her identity. He's like, and also, you're a married woman. You're not supposed to be doing this. That's who he is. I'm not the kind of person who does these kind of things because I'm a covenant son of Israel. I am a follower of Yahweh. I don't do this, and I'm trusted by my master, and this is wrong. But then he remembers not only who he is, but who he belongs to, 
in verse 9 of chapter 39, he says this great line, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Because he had identity, he recognized I belong to Yahweh. I can't do this because I know whose I am. Amen? Knowing we need to teach our children this. We need to know this. We need to be deeply rooted in our identity. Who we are and whose we are. That'll keep us from all kind of nonsense. And then later, Joseph, while in prison, when Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer need their dreams interpreted, you know, Joseph interprets their dreams perfectly. Now one of them dies and one of them lives. The baker dies, the cupbearer lives. But Joseph's interpretation was spot on. And he tells the cupbearer, now that I've done this for you, can you do something for me? In chapter 40, he says this, when all goes well with you because I helped you interpret this dream, remember me and show me kindness. Could you mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of prison? And this is the, the identity statement. He says, I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. He knows who he is. I'm Hebrew. And even there, here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in the dungeon. Joseph knows who he is. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I don't deserve to be here. Identity. And then two years later, after the cupbearer finally remembered that he had forgotten somebody, uh, he, he says, okay, there's this guy, Joseph, and he can interpret the dream. And Pharaoh has a dream, calls Joseph up. Joseph is now in Pharaoh's presence, the man who can t- completely set him free. And Pharaoh says, interpret my dream because I heard you can. And I love what Joseph says in reply to Pharaoh saying, I heard you can interpret dreams in chapter 41, verse 16. Joseph says, I cannot do it. He knew who he was. I'm not God. I'm not divine. I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. He knew not only who he was, I can't do it, but whose he was. God can do it through me, right? It's like when Paul says, I can do all things. Sounds braggadocious through Christ who gives me the strength to do it. I know who I am and whose I am. And he holds on to his identity and he continues. Even though he's of now, after this interpretation, he becomes like a baller in Egypt. He's the baller shot caller, the ring, the robe, the chariot, people shouting out before him, make way, a former slave, now in full regalia as the top dog in Egypt. No one but Pharaoh himself has more power than this ex-Hebrew slave, but yet he holds on to his covenant identity of a child of Yahweh. And he gives his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. Because when you know who you are and whose you are, you won't let success go to your head or failure go to your heart. Those are the things that we struggle with in our identity, don't we? We either become overinflated with ego or something goes away that we didn't want it to, we fail in some way and it destroys us. And identity says that neither of those extremes are for the follower of Jesus. We're neither big-headed and egotistical, neither are we destitute and brought down lower than we should be. We belong to Jesus Christ. We're sons and daughters of Jesus. Amen, church? That's your identity. Thank you, those of you who are excited about being sons and daughters of Jesus. <laughs> Two of you. That's awesome. I'm just giving it to you. If you want to clap, though, you can. Being sons and daughters of Jesus. I, mean, I don't know. There's a few things worth clapping for, and I think that declaration is at least one of them. So the first point that we learn from Joseph on overcoming 
potential bitterness is number one, what was it? Identity. Number two, for those of you who remember the three words, is what? Choice. There's a choice in this. See, Joseph decides to move beyond his past. He's elevated to the number two seat in Egypt, baller, shot caller. He's now got the power and position to enact revenge, but he chooses the way of forgiveness. And he actually names his sons in a way that marks these two movements of the heart. And it's worth noting, he names his sons forgetting the past and being fruitful in the present. Manasseh means I've forgotten the past. Ephraim means I'm fruitful in the present. You know that you can't be fruitful if you haven't forgotten the past. If you don't forgive in the present, you won't be fruitful. See, forgiveness and fruit, they go hand in hand. And there's nothing like unforgiveness that's going to keep you from bearing fruit. I heard somebody say it this way. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the person you're bitter at to die. It doesn't work, right? Unforgiveness is like letting some, or forgiveness, they say, is like letting someone out of prison and realizing that that prisoner was you. And so he chooses Manasseh forgetting Ephraim fruitful. One precedes the other. You have to have Manasseh first. You have to forget first so that you can be fruitful second. He names his two sons based on these movements of his heart. Now, what does it mean to forget the past? I'm no neuroscientist, so I don't know if you're a neuroscientist. You might be able to correct me on this. But from what I understand of neurology and the way that the human brain works is that you never forget anything. You just can't recall it all, right? Sometimes you just can't remember things, but it doesn't mean it's not in there. It just means your ability to go find that book in the library of your brain has slowed way down. So we can't just wipe memories clean. So when the Bible says forget, does it mean wipe your memory clean? Well, actually, probably when we talk about forgetting in the Scriptures, it is don't dwell on it. Don't keep talking about it. Don't hyper-focus on it. Paul actually put it this way. He uses the word forgetting as well. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, he says, This one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I strain toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul, when he uses this word forgetting, he uses the illustration of someone running a race. How many of it runners in here? Anybody? Track stars, runners, even joggers around a track just to you know, keep the COVID weight off or whatever, fight back against the COVID weight. But you know when you're running, especially if you're in a race, like the only way you should be looking to win is what direction? Forward. That's not a trick question. Forward, right? Run forward, face forward, feet forward, eyes forward, not backward. The minute you start looking backward is the minute you begin to tumble and fall. And Paul says, this is the one thing I do. Forget what's behind and go forward. Run forward, focus forward, keep my eyes looking forward. Forgetting. Now this is a choice we have to make especially if you've been significantly hurt by people and events of your past. Joseph had a lot of hurt in the rearview mirror. But he also had a lot to look forward to in the present and the future. And for those of you who have been significantly hurt by someone, I don't, I don't want to diminish that anyway. There are hurts in our rearview mirror that really have formed and shaped us and they have been painful. 
But in order to move forward, you have to see that what's in the past is not what to focus on, but what it's, what's in the present and also in the future. Because there's good things ahead. We must have Manasseh forgetting in order to have Ephraim fruitful. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this book called The Great Divorce. Have you ever read The Great Divorce? It's a good book. I recommend it. Um, but, he, but when he talks about hell, and again, it's not a theology book. It's an allegory about what hell's like. He describes hell as a place where no one forgets anything. Can you imagine that? It's the idea that in hell, each person will remember every offense, every slight, every cruel exchange of words, every wrong ever done to them, and everyone would be utterly unforgiving. That sounds hellish, doesn't it? You're a hell in your own mind of all the things and hurts and conversations that you've ever had. But he says, in heaven, all these things are put away because all things have become new. Let's choose days of heaven on earth, not days of hell. You know that recounting the hurts from the past, recounting things in the past, things you've done to others and things that have been done to you, is hell. It's hellish. It's bringing hell into your life. But to live days of heaven on earth is, is, is learning to put those things behind us. Now, I know that that's not simple. It's not, there's no silver bullet to simply solve it. But the way of forgiveness, I just want to give you a couple of uh, thoughts on how to forgive real quick. Because we can't erase memories or change the past, but we can walk toward forgetting by forgiving. So I would recommend this. Number one, confess those things to God and a trusted counselor. The Bible recommends confession. It's like taking the trash out. I always tell the kids, you know, I don't know, how many of you have teenagers or had teenagers? I don't know, when they get to be teenagers, there's a lot of like easy activities that become difficult somehow. And one of them is taking out the trash. It's amazing the, the, the Jenga like um, skill that they'll use to just stack something else on top of an already filled trash just to not have to be the one to take it out, right? But, you know, you let that stuff sit in there and pretty soon it starts to stank up the place and rot out the place. And sometimes I just say, you know, confession is like taking the trash out. First John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James chapter 5 says that we're to confess our faults one to another and pray for each other that we might be healed. This, this art of confessing the things that have caused you hurt and harm and maybe are potentially causing bitterness, that, that trash needs to go out. Take the trash out. It's stinking up the joint. It's toxic. Confession is powerful. It's homologeo in the Greek. It means to say the same as. It's to say, God, I know I need to forgive and I'm holding unforgiveness. God, help me. I confess this to you and a trusted person. Number two, I would suggest ask God specifically to free you from the hurts of the past. Be specific, especially if there are specific events or people by name and events specifically that have happened to you that are still holding on to you. Confess those before God. And ask him to free you of that. Number three, choose to focus on the present good and future possibilities. Don't get stuck looking backward. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which lie behind, I look forward. I press on. I'm a runner in a race. I keep my eyes and my feet pointed forward. I focus on the present good and future possibilities. And then fourth, in the way of forgiveness, don't keep talking about it. Confess it to God and a wise mentor and let it go.
You know, one of the ways you know that you're starting to be free of the past is when you don't have to incessantly focus or talk about it. You know what happens when words come out in the air? It's reopening a wound. It's not to say that there's not a time and a place to let it go, but at some point, once you stop talking about it, that very issue or incident or unforgiveness or bitterness starts to lose its grip on your heart. So Joseph kept his heart from getting stuck from bitterness. By number one, what was the first word? Identity. Number two, by? He decided to move beyond the past. And then third and finally, what is that word? Providence. How many are familiar with the word providence? Joseph is, at this point, we're going to see tracing the hand of God in even his darkest moments. Um, But here's a working definition of providence, this concept of providence. Providence is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, toward a worthy purpose and according to his will. There's a psalm that says it this way about God's providence, Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And then Paul says it this way about God's providence, his ruling over all things seen and unseen. Ephesians 1.11, God works out everything in in conformity with the purpose of his will. We see God primarily work in the world in two hands. His seen hand of miracles and his unseen hand of providence. Now, I was just thinking about this like being a parent and a dad. I work with my kids in two hands. The seen hand of things they can get their mind around. I took them to a nice dinner. I took them on a vacation. I bought them a present. That's the seen hand. And they're like, thanks, Dad, for those new Nikes. Thanks, Dad, for that trip or that dinner. The, the, the seen things, the, the gifts on my birthday and Christmas and the trips and the things that we do for our kids, the, the seen stuff. But, you know, I mean, like you, I mean, as a parent, I do a lot of things that go unseen by my kids. The, the, the mortgage bill, the gas bill, just creating an environment for them through much sweat and toil that, that allows them to safely dwell and be raised and launched into the world as productive human beings. So they don't see all that. I mean, I don't know about you. My kids don't come up to me every month and go, Dad, thank you for paying the gas bill. We need you, man. You've come through again. Better than those Jordans is this gas bill that you pay every month to keep us warm and able to turn our cold right now. Um, And and so often in our relationship with God, when when he does something, the seen hand, he delivers us, he heals us, he touches us, he makes transformative things of our life, we we give him praise. We should thank God for the miracles in our lives. Anybody here testify that you have been the recipient of the seen hand of God in miracles? Yeah, the fact that you're a born-again follower of Jesus means that you have experienced the seen hand of God. But there is so much that God does that goes unseen, unnoticed. You don't know how God is working behind the scenes. You know, we sing that song a lot in church, even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Amen? He never stops working, but he's working behind the scenes, coordinating activities and events for your favor and for your good. And it's for that reason that Joseph could look at his life 
and say, God, I not only thank you for what I see you do, I thank you for what I don't see you do. Add that to your gratitude practice. Because I promise you this, God is doing more behind the scenes than you'll ever see. But one day, your life will catch up to all the things that God has been doing, and you will see the favor of God in your life. Over and over and over, through the life of Joseph, there's these marked statements in Potiphar's house, God favored Joseph to the point that he was elevated to the point of second in command, ruler of all the house of Potiphar. Even though he was sold into slavery, God's hand was on him. Even in the prison, falsely accused, imprisoned, it says that the favor of God, that God was pleased with Joseph and he elevated him even in the prison. There's this really intense moment in Joseph's life where it's like the providence of God all meets because Joseph has lived long enough now to see that all the evil has been turned for good. Now he's second in command. And there's this moment when his brothers, the ones who had enacted so much evil on his life and sent him into prison and slavery and all the suffering, now that he's second in command, he has this moment of revealing himself to his brothers. And I just want to read this to you. I believe it'll come up on the screen in Genesis chapter 45. This great moment when Joseph says to his brothers, they don't yet know it's him, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, Can you imagine this? I'm your brother, Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. And now, he has to follow up real quickly, don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because, now notice this, this is providence. He sees now the providence of God God sent me here to save lives, and God sent me ahead of you. For two years, there now will be a famine in the land. The next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. And then notice again, verse 7. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it is not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of this entire household, and the ruler of all Egypt. Now that's not something you can say when you're rotting in a prison or when your brothers have suddenly become murderously jealous and throw you in an empty well cavern and then sell you out to slavery. You're not, you're not, your perspective is, is just in that moment, this is evil, evil has happened, I've been hurt, I've been damaged, but in the providence of God, none of the things that happened could have happened had Joseph not been betrayed by his brothers, the favored of his father, sent to Potiphar's house, betrayed by Potiphar and his wife, sent into a prison wherein he would meet a cupbearer that would forget about him for two years so that when he came to the time that Pharaoh has a dream that Joseph is still sitting in the same place. Who knows where Joseph would have been had he got released early. He sat and rotted in a prison for two extra years so that he could be there at the exact time that Pharaoh had a dream so that when Pharaoh had a dream, the cupbearer would say, oh, I forgot something. There's a dream interpreter in that prison. And so then Pharaoh calls for Joseph and Joseph interprets the dream because of God's hand upon him, the favor of God upon his life, even in the unseen. And he's able to interpret the dream, save all the world really, especially the remnant of the household of Israel, his own family. And in hindsight, when he's sitting in that place of prestige, he's able to say, God was at work even when I didn't see his hand. Brothers and sisters, I promise you, God is working behind the scenes. Even in the thing you would say, how could that ever be good? One day, you're going to be able to say, Romans 8, 28, with full confidence, 
all things work together for the good who those who love him are called according to his purpose. Amen? It's not saying everything's good. It says it is all working toward good for your good and for the good of others. He's like, God sent me ahead of you to save your life. But I didn't know it at the time, but I can see it now. And God sometimes gives us moments where in reflection, we get a chance to see what God was up to. And the Bible says that I believe that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I believe that God is going to let you see some of the things that you thought were a loss as a gain while you're still on the planet. And some of the things we won't know until heaven. Heaven's going to be amazing. When we arrive in heaven, things are going to be so clear why you went through what you went through, why you have been betrayed and hurt, why you did what you did, why what was done to you was done to you. It's all going to be made known. You'll see some of this, some of it this side of heaven, some of it you won't know until the end. But I promise you this, God's working all this together to do something profoundly good. Do you believe that? Amen. You believe that? I believe that. I'm banking on it, man. Unless if I didn't have that hope, I mean, I'd be like, I'm quitting now while I'm ahead. I had enough behind me and I've done enough and enough's been done to me. Just like, what's the point? But I am a firm believer that all of this is working for a good purpose in the end. See, good isn't, good isn't without hardship. Good isn't, isn't just easy walking through the daisies, all bills paid, all family relationships in harmony. I'd love that, but, but good is when God's purposes are being accomplished even through the darkest moments. And Joseph's able to see that. Now, in Joseph's powerful story of forgiveness, as we draw to a close, this is a time to recall the gospel. If you ever get a chance to do this, I'd recommend it. Compare the earthly life of Joseph with the earthly life of Jesus. And I'm just going to point out a few things where Jesus and Joseph have some similarities. Jesus, like Joseph, was the beloved son of his father. We could say he was daddy's favorite. Jesus, like Joseph, was betrayed by his brothers, was sold out for a few shekels of silver. For Joseph, it was 20. For Jesus, it was 30. Jesus, like Joseph, was left for dead, only to be exalted to the highest place and sent ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And he extends forgiveness and abundance to those who betrayed him and harmed him. And if you, like Joseph's brothers, have been a recipient of grace, of forgiveness. You know, it's funny, in the, in the Bible stories, we often want to be the hero. So I'm reading Joseph, I'm like, I'm Joseph, forgiving all these terrible people who did all these terrible things to me. And Jesus is like, no, you're not Joseph, you're one of his brothers. You've, you need to be forgiven for the way that you have offended God. And as I put myself in that place, a forgiven one, the scriptures say that I must then forgive. Jesus said, freely you've been given, freely you should give. Jesus said, if you don't forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father won't forgive you of your own sins. Forgiveness is a requirement of the Christian life. And it's the only way to be fruitful. But what comes first is forgiving people are forgiven people. I mean, some of you might have a natural disposition toward letting things roll off your back, like water off a duck's back. Some of us are grudge holders. I'm a born by nature since 
as early as I can remember, I was a born grudge holder. Bitter against everything, even my parents. Two years old, you know, just little grudge holding kid. But the gospel says you got to change. And the only way I'm going to change is if I fully receive the forgiveness that I need. And fully forgiven people are fully forgiving people. Amen? Fully forgiven, fully forgiving. Fully forgiving, fruitful. Unforgiving, unfruitful. Manasseh, forget the past, move forward, keep your eyes forward to the present and the future. It's going to be good. We're going to be all right, folks. Keep your eyes focused forward so that you might be fruitful. Manasseh, then Ephraim. I want to finish with this because as we talk about the high cost of forgiveness, I don't want to tread lightly on it because there is a sacrificial beauty in forgiving as we fellowship with Jesus. So I want to finish with this Timothy Keller quote on the cost of forgiveness. Um, just listen to this and as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. When speaking of forgiveness, Jesus uses the image of debts to describe the nature of sins. When somebody seriously wrongs you, there is an absolutely unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes you. The wrong has incurred an obligation, a liability, a debt. Anyone who has been wrong feels a compulsion to make the other person pay down that debt. We do that by hurting them, yelling at them, making them feel bad in some way, or just waiting and watching and hoping that something bad happens to them. Only after we see them suffer in some commensurate way do we sense that the debt has been paid and the sense of obligation is gone. This sense of debt, liability, and obligation is impossible to escape. Anyone who denies this exists, that this exists has simply not been wronged or sinned against in any serious way. And then he uses this illustration. What then is forgiveness? Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. But it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. What does that mean? Well, think about the monetary debts work. If a friend breaks my lamp and if the lamp costs $50 to replace, then the act of lamp breaking incurs a debt of $50. If I let him pay for and replace the lamp, I get my lamp back and he's out $50. But if I choose to forgive him for what he did, the debt does not somehow vanish into thin air. When I forgive him, I absorb the cost and payment for the lamp. Either I will pay the $50 to replace it, or I will lose the lighting in that room. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. But someone always pays every debt. Jesus paid our debt. As it goes, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. We needed someone to wash our sin away. Because Jesus paid down, paid off, paid away my sin debt, I now can join with him in paying off the sin debt of others who owe me and say, because I've been forgiven and my debt has been paid, I can Manasseh forget so that I can Ephraim be fruitful. And I can join with Jesus in the painful, costly, beautiful work 
of being the kind of person who forgives others the debts that they owe to me because my debt has been cleared. So as we enter into this time of worship in this space, if you have somebody in your life or an instant in your life that you're having a hard time getting through, we want to invite you for prayer. There will be men and women, even during this next song, as you prepare your heart for communion, it's a good time to actually release anyone that you're holding things against. So whether you do that in your seat or you nudge the person sitting next to you and say, would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? Because I'm having a hard time forgetting the past. We want to do that as we go into communion. We want to prepare our hearts to receive the body and blood of Jesus. We don't want to come irreverently to the body and blood of Jesus without forgiving others as we symbolically say, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. I can't do that if I'm holding something against somebody. And so we want to invite you during this time to do business with the Lord by inviting someone to pray for you. There will be people available or pray to the Lord as you you sit there. But as we sing, maybe let your heart focus, especially for those who need this, to let this be a time of preparation to receive the body and blood of Jesus.